listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, uranium, cell phones, and bored mice. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Suzanne Cantra from Popular Science Magazine to review the year in science. Also, we'll find out what a chloroplast is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? That was a pretty awesome Christmas, huh? Getting good grips. Grips? <laughs> Were you conned? Well, I was hoping to get some highly enriched uranium. You know, Santa's been looking for those weapons of mass destruction as much as anybody. Unfortunately, I didn't get them this year. There's people in line ahead of you. Well, it turns out the U.S. is not very good at keeping track of highly enriched uranium. So it turns out over the past 50 years or so, they've given samples to about 34 countries for their own research reactors. 12 of them have decided not to return any of it. Only 11 of them have actually returned all of it. Another 11 has returned some of it. And the other 12 have decided not to return any of it. And those include Indonesia, Israel, Turkey, Jamaica, Iran, and Pakistan. But are these amounts of highly enriched uranium going to be useful for anything other than research? Well, the 11 countries that have returned all of it, which comprise about 914 kilograms, is actually enough to build 20 nuclear weapons. Wow. So you gotta wonder what the uh, other 12 countries have. At least certainly enough to build one. I'm pretty sure there is. One might be enough. For, uh, a little bit disturbing, I think. Yeah. So there's some recommendations that the Department of Energy should offer greater incentives for these foreign researchers to return them. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot more valuable on the black market. There's the... actually a report on the Government Accountability Office at www.gao.gov. <laughs> So, uh, you plan to do much traveling this holiday season? Yeah, I'm just exhausted. Where'd you go? Here and there. You know, I follow Santa. You know, there's a lot more fun than here. Indeed. So, do you remember to take your passport along? Nah, I didn't need that. When you travel with Santa, everything's cool, right? Yeah, everyone knows me. Did you go as one of his elves? No, I went as one of his reindeers. Uh, I pretended to be one of the reindeers. <laughs> so, uh, the other reindeer accept you, because, you know, they can be somewhat unaccepting of the odd reindeer out. Right, the one that looks like a human. Yeah. So, it's quite interesting, because a lot of people are actually trying to prove passports so they have, like, these biometric chips in them. Indeed. So that it's harder to forge and it's hard to get people in and out. So it's sort of a main problem with trying to secure the borders is making sure people don't get a hold of fake passports. Right. But there's sort of a deadline right now for getting a huge system up and running by October 2005. Mm -hmm. And a group of engineers at the Institute of Electrical Engineering in London has warned that it doesn't look like this technology is going to be even close to being ready by that deadline. So we can't have your uh, passport encoded with your DNA or something like that? Uh, I was thinking other fluids, but you know... Oh, Jay Simpson would be proud. All the passwords should come with a black glove, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. So basically, the biometric system basically has a chip, which would have like a scan of various biological features that are unique to each person. Right. But it just seems like types of scanners that they would set up in the actual entrance lounges aren't going to be capable of actually dealing with a lot of variety in the environment. So people who are shorter or taller, they, they have to adjust these things as well. It's too bad. Yeah. Probably all the growing pains of trying to get this thing implemented, but we'll just have to see what happens. Wow. More control. Okay. And this was featured in a recent edition of Nature. So 
Hello, Charles. Are you afraid of cell phones? I'm afraid of them just because a cell phone killed my father. Oh, jeez. So I need revenge. No, no, cell phones are good. <laughs> so you don't think those radio waves will actually zap your brain and fry them? Well, as opposed to all the other things that could zap my brain and fry it, I guess it's lower on the priority list. So there's a study that was just carried out by German research group Verum, and they studied the effects of radiation of these cell phones on human and animal cells. And what they found was they exposed these cells to electromagnetic fields, which are typical for mobile phones, and they showed a significant increase in single and double strand DNA breaks. So just the radiation was enough to break up the DNA? It seems like it, and in fact, the damage cannot be repaired. So, so who uh, are the cells talking to? I don't know. Do they have other cells in some other lab? I think there might be a conspiracy going on, <laughs> but this sort of shows that it would lead to future generation of cells which were defective with mutations, and it could be a precursor to cancer. Uh, you know, I always feel like my DNA is breaking apart as soon as I talk to anybody on the cell phone. Mm. It's just because it costs nine ninety five a minute, so <laughs> it might actually be my wallet that's <laughs> breaking apart. It's the people who call you, huh? Yeah. Damn 900 numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's those credit card companies that get me. You know, 500% interest. That'll break down biological tissue. Indeed. So, none of the cell phone companies have commented on this, but it remains to be seen whether there's actually any deleterious effect from uh, using mobile phones. Until then, I guess I'm going to keep making my calls. <laughs> <laughs> Reach out and tell someone. Yeah. So, this was an article from the Monday, December 20th issue of News.com. Okay, Frank, did you get a lot of toys this Christmas? No, I got a lot of food, actually. It can be even better. You can eat it. <laughs> well, I've tried eating my toys as well. well. I like the minty ones. I like the ones with spikes in them. Spikes in them? Sort of sadomasochistic kind of pleasure. Well, it turns out that actually rats also are very energized by having a lot of novel toys in their cages. Really? Like pieces of feces? I don't know if that ever counts as toy. Well, you know, it could be like a football thing for them. Yeah, you could just like attach a rubber band on it. They could <laughs> use it as like a little Nerf slingshot. <laughs> so what kind of toys do rats like? Any kind of thing that you put in their cage that just is novel. How about like it's Mickey Mouse? <laughs> Who does doesn't like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it's good to see when one of their own has made it good. But what it turns out, though, is that they've shown already that rats who live in more stimulating environments have less stress than those who live in very plain and uninspired environments. And it's been thought for some time, though, that this could affect the results of behavioral experiments hmm. because it might influence how their brain is wired. Right. But Hannah Werbel, though, an ethnologist at the University of Glessen in Germany, has stated that, in fact, there was no actual proof that the lack of any stimulating environment would change the results. So what he did is he actually set out to test this and ran a number of behavioral tests tests on both rats in stimulating and non-stimulating environments, and they found very little difference in the results from the behavioral tests, but it did seem like the rats in the stimulating environments were more confident. So this could alter human psychological experiments, perhaps? Uh, that's really true. I know every time I go to a novel place with feces in it, I'm stimulated to some extent. Or disgusted, perhaps? <laughs> it's really not more confident. <laughs> but that, it's really very cool stuff. And if anybody wants to know more about that, they can take a look in last week's issue of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Ms. Suzanne Cantra from Popular Science Magazine will review the year in science. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, as the year draws to a close, many of us will be reflecting on the year that has just passed. And of course, foremost in everyone's mind is the year in science. From hypoallergenic cats to private spaceflight, 2004 was a mixed bag for science. And joining us to discuss the 2004 year in science is Ms. Suzanne Cantra. Ms. Cantra is the technology editor at Popular Science Magazine, whose recent issue has a focus piece on the year in science. Ms. Cantra, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. And it's uh, always interesting to see Popular Science when they do their year in review roundup of science. I'm curious, how did you all choose the stories that were featured in the recent issue? Well, we really wanted it to capture what happened over the year, some of the smaller stories as well as some of the larger stories. So we have everything from the X Prize being won for the first time, the uh, civilian effort to get people into suborbital space, to, as you were saying, the cloned cats and some other small tidbits in science like cactus pills making your hangover go away. So we just want to get a flavor of everything that happened over the year. So not just the big events, but also just sort of the interesting and events that might be affecting everybody's lives. Exactly. So let's talk about this. So you, you did mention the X Prize. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the X Prize is something that has been hanging out there for a couple of years, and Bert Rutan was able to get an aircraft up twice within a couple-week time frame, really showing that suborbital space is viable on a commercial basis, so people could just take this up the way they would an airplane across the United States. And so while we are a little ways out from actually doing that, the ability to show in a test vehicle that it can be done was just incredible, and that's really what the X Prize was all about. Indeed, indeed. Is, is the hope for this then also to extend into spaceflight? Shuttling to the moon. To, sp- yeah. <laughs> to the moon. They're also talking about space hotels where people would take up a craft like this and be able to stop over and stay in the space hotel for a night and come back down. So the craft that won would have to be modified to be able to you know, dock at such a kind of facility like a space hotel. But that's sort of the idea is that the commercial space, as opposed to somebody like NASA, may have more resources and may be able to think outside the box a little bit more than our government can. And they certainly have done a fantastic job with Spaceship One. Indeed, I think private enterprise usually uh, helps to uh, bring it to the masses. Exactly. Okay, so another interesting story, of course, was uh, the cloning of embryos by some South Korean scientists. Oh, and this continues to be a hot-button topic. You know, how do you get stem cells? And we have a limited pool of stem cells to work with because the Bush administration has dictated that we use existing cells. But they don't have that restriction over in Korea, and so they were able to work with a much larger pool. Of course, with the California nurse passing the bond that are going to be raising $3 billion of the next 10 years, there is hope that some of the people in the private sector will be able to do more with stem cell research. So we'll see what's happening, but you know, we don't want to be left behind. Right. And there are a lot of other countries out there that don't have the same kind of restrictions. Is there still the fear that this technology could be used besides just cloning embryos, perhaps even to cloning humans eventually? Well, I think that there's a lot of pressure to not do that. The reason to clone the embryo was to harvest the stem cells. And this, you're, you're talking about an embryo just doesn't have a lot of cells. It's not very far along in the development process. And this is, was never meant to become a human being. But people feel very strongly about when does a human life start? And there needs to be a lot more discussion, I think, in this country before that's going to be resolved. Certainly here in California, everyone's well aware of that with the recent propositions passing here. Exactly. Okay, so another interesting finding was the archaeologists, they discovered all those hobbit-sized uh, <laughs> bones out there. <laughs> is, is this Middle Earth? <laughs> Middle Earth, right yeah. on Earth, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, we're talking about human beings that have brains about a third the size of ours, but they're still able to make tools 
like the ones that we found with our own ancestors, Homo sapiens, in Europe. And so they feel that the brain structure was a lot more like ours as opposed to a chimpanzee's. And, you know, these are humans of a sort that were living as recently as 12,000 years ago when, you know, our own species had already populated the Americas. So we have to sort of revisit our thinking about the human family tree and, and how that actually developed and how important brain size really is to being able to be smart. Seems like every couple of years they're always finding new fossil evidence that has to expand our view of evolution. In, exactly. You know, well, you know, we haven't found everything that there is to find, and it just it makes it exciting to be able to fill in some of those holes. Let's talk about some cloning of cats that uh, happened recently. <laughs> Speaking of cloning, yeah. well, you know, for $50,000, you can, yeah. you know, have Fluffy cloned. The first cats were Bengal kittens called Tabuli and Baba Ganoush, mm-hmm. born on June 12th and 14th. And they took them around the, the country, and they had full red carpet treatment. But, you know, it's sort of interesting, this genetic savings and clone, the company that <laughs> is set up to duplicate pets. I guess the question becomes, if the pet looks exactly like your old pet, is it going to act like your old pet? And it's going to be interesting to see what kind of reception the people who are spending that money actually have to the new pets, because, you know, the personality is going to be different. You know, if they're willing to pay the money, I think it might be worth it. And, of course, they're working on dogs, too. I Uh. guess cats were easier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's uh, good news for all the cat people out there, I guess. Exactly. Cat fanciers, you are, you know, dog owners have to wait a few more years, Uh, I think. Well, okay, I guess big news recently, of course, was the flu shot vaccine problem that they were having. Well, and that continues to be an interesting discussion. You know, we need to make sure that we have enough of a supply, and who does it go to when you don't have enough of a supply? But there's a lot of funding that goes for high-profile diseases like cancer and HIV, but there are a lot of people who actually die from the flu, and I think it puts a spotlight on how are we spending our resources for these other types of illnesses that people don't see as deadly but actually are in a lot of cases. Do we have enough research going on to try and combat things like the flu. Indeed, indeed. It certainly will be an important issue for us. Um, so it's a, there are a lot of interesting inventions also in the year 2000. Oh, absolutely. And some of this stuff is just sort of wacky and some of it's fun. I mean, one of the more wacky ones was scientists came out with what they call the food expert ID, and it's really set up to, you know, figure out what the mystery meat is on the menu. <laughs> okay. um, you know, is it truly beef or is it something else? Horse, like maybe. Horse, cow, right? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it kangaroo meat? So they set it up so it can detect 33 different types of species and hopefully you'll know exactly what's on the menu next time. Another one that was sort of cool is this window treatment that can stop absorbing the sun rays at a pre-programmed temperature, and then it will end up reflecting it so that if you want more heat in the building, it will absorb the heat. If it's hot outside, it will just block it. So oh, wow. that could be big news for people, especially in the South, where they have a lot more heating issues. Right. Uh, so what was your favorite science story of the previous year? Well, there are a lot of sort of funny little stories that I like. Mm-hmm. I, actually, this one was sort of cute. They found with voles, which are notorious for not keeping the same partner, that when researchers switch the gene that links pleasure with the smell of your partner, mm-hmm. that they become instantly monogamous. They are just paired and bonded for life. So that's sort of an interesting finding. Huh. Uh, they also were testing and seeing how much eye rolling had to do with the likelihood of divorce. And that <laughs> seems to be a, of epidemic proportions in the United States. It'd be sort of interesting to check it out in your own relationship. But they said that if you roll your eyes a lot, much more likely to be divorced than if you don't roll your eyes. So, oh, dear. Stop so rolling your eyes then. Right. Don't do it. <laughs>
And there are some other, you know, obviously this year was one of the worst years for tropical storms with mm-hmm. Charlie, Francis, Ivan, and Jean pounding the Florida coastline. And we've also found that just beyond the anecdotal evidence of global warming, that in the past year, carbon dioxide has hit record high levels, soaring from 376 parts per million. And if that's left unchecked, by 2100, we could result in a rise of, in temperature from 2 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which mm. you know, obviously would have huge changes in terms of mm. who are out there. We are thinking that one-third of the animals that are currently studied could be extinct by 2050 if global warming continues at, at the rate it is. So that continues to be a very big story and a mm. very hot topic. Right, right. So what does this uh, bode for the future? What does 2005 look like for the year in science? Well, I mean, obviously a lot of what happens in the U.S. is dictated by what the Bush administration feels are their priorities. So scientists are always looking to try and tailor their research into that. But, you know, there's some fun things that they're working on. In June, the U.S. and some Austrian researchers teleported the quantum properties of one atom onto another. So we're sort of starting to see the beginnings of teleportation. In this case, it just meaning that we could be seeing quantum computers. So the quest for ever smaller devices, little micro-machines that would be able to create through your bloodstream mm. and eat blood clots and deliver specific medications to cells. All of that is stuff that is continuing to be worked on and it's something that we're going to start seeing real paybacks for. Well, I, I think it should be an exciting year. So we are definitely a little out of time though, but Ms. Cantor, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grox and giving us the year science in review. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Ms. Suzanne Cantra from Popular Science Magazine reviewing the year in science. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out how to make a good snowball. So stay tuned. He put one hand upon my head Great God to mighty, let me tell you what he said Go tell that lonesome liar hey. Go tell that midnight rider hey. Tell the gamble and the rambling backslider Tell the God mighty, gonna curl him down Run on, run on for a long time Run on, ducking and dodging Run on, children, for a long time Let me tell you, God mighty, gonna curl you down You might throw your rock, hide your hand Yeah! Back to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how to make a good snowball? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Ever wonder what makes a good snowball? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Before we can make a nice fat snowball, nature first has to make some snow. Let's travel aloft to see that process in action. Snow starts here in the sky, as water vapor. If the air up here is cold, that water vapor crystallizes around particles of ice or dust. 
which then fall to earth as snow. But all snowflakes are not created equal. Some are the light, fine particle powder variety that skiers prefer. Other snowflakes are much more jagged and heavier. This is the type snowball makers prefer. Whether snow is better for skiing or throwing depends on its density. How dense an object is depends on how tightly compacted its particles are. Powder snow has very little moisture, so it has a lower density. Snowball snow, however, is wetter, so its density is higher. Not only that, when these thick flakes fall to the ground, they don't sit delicately on top of their neighbors. They crowd in and pack together, filling every bit of space. This packing action is what makes for great snowballs. Because not only does each snowflake start out denser, when it hits the ground, it packs in much more tightly. Which to you only means one thing. A good snowball fight depends more on how heavy the snow is than on how good a throwing arm you have. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And those are the cold, hard facts about snowballs. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Ooh, Everyday Science Lady, I wish we were packed tightly together. And now here's Jedi Master Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. Thank you. Strong enough for it is, and it gives us greenness I like. Mm. It is the chloroplast. It converts sunlight into energy by making sugar. Mm. And that's what the chloroplast is. Oh, great then. Thank you very much there, Yoda. It's not really like great to be understanding what a chloroplast is. But you know what? Humans don't really have all that shit while I'm trying to get my food on our great stuff like that. But what's even better is when I'm digesting through my large colon. But what is it? If you know what the large colon does, you can email us at groxatomit.com. You're not going to win anything, but ugh, you just might enjoy that nice meal of haggis. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Bling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great day and stay tuned for more music with your host, Dollar Short. Dollar Short.